just ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we just sang big things about you, for you are a big God, capable of doing very big things. And now we ask, Father, for you, our big God, to do very big things through your word today. Lord, this is a passage that is complex. And Lord, it's also vital. Lord, this is a passage, Father, that launches ministries. This is a passage, Father, that emboldens hearts. This is a passage, Father, that reveals truth that, Lord, you have given to us. That, Lord, you're building something unique in this world, something that has not been seen. An organism made up of people of all races, nationalities, ethnicities. Lord, for the purpose of proclaiming the name of your one and only Son, Jesus, Lord. Lord, the kingdom and all of its joys manifested in this outpost that you've put on this earth until your son returns, the outpost that is the church. Help us, I pray, Lord, to see its significance over the next couple of weeks, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Who is Jesus to you? Really, you could never be asked a greater question than this. In your mind and in your heart, who is Jesus? Was he simply a controversial figure in first century Palestine? Or merely a great teacher, one of many fine religious examples to follow? Is he just the moral guide for Christians? The one who exampled an incredible love for other people and who should now be mimicked by people? Or is he merely the one who saves people from sin's consequences, allowing them then to live their lives guilt-free while they go on pursuing their own life desires? Who do you say Jesus is? Your answer to that question reveals the foundation of your life. In your mind, if he is just a teacher, just an example to follow, or merely a savior from punishment, then your life foundation is found apart from him. But in your mind and heart, if he is Lord God and full deliverer of his people, delivering them not only from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power and eventually from sin's presence, then he himself is the foundation of your life upon which everything else is built. What is more, if Jesus is those things, Lord, God and full deliverer, then he himself is the foundation of his church. This morning, we're going to talk about the church of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about it because 16 chapters now into this gospel, Matthew records Jesus talking about it. Matthew has set the agenda for us today. God and his word has set the agenda for us today. And today we're talking about the church. And the truths that Jesus reveals here are fundamental and crucial to all of those who call him Lord, Savior, God, 
deliverer. Now, if you recall, in the first 12 verses of this chapter, Jesus has just left another confrontation with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And now, in verse 13, he and his disciples have traveled north, about 25 miles away from the Sea of Galilee, to a small town at the base of Mount Hermon, known as Caesarea Philippi. This community was named after both Herod Philip, who had founded the town, and the Caesar who ruled in Rome, and it was inhabited mostly by Gentiles. And here it is, in this little idolatrous Gentile village, that Jesus will first mention his church. And he does it by first asking his disciples a question in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say I am? As we're going about from place to place, from one region to the next, and you hear things as we go, what are people saying about me? Who do they say I am? And his disciples answered him in verse 14. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, Jesus, people have all kinds of fanciful ideas of who you might be, but no one really knows. So Jesus asks them a more pointed question. But who do you say that I am? And their answer to this is everything. Indeed, it is everything for the church. This passage provides, I think, four truths about the church, two of which we're going to consider today and two of which we're going to consider next week in part two of this sermon because I don't want to rush through any of these. This is one of those texts that you wait and prepare for early on in a book because you know there are some texts that have a special amount of significance. This is one of those places and we're not going to go quickly. And in this text, we find, I think, four truths. The first two we'll look at today are, number one, that the church is built on a rock-solid foundation. And number two, that the church is made up of blessed people. And then next week, we're going to consider two more. Number three, that the church is indomitably built, being built by its divine owner, and then number four, that the church has been given the keys of the kingdom. So to begin with today, truth number one, the church is being built on a rock-solid foundation. Look with me at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, before we get into this first truth, we must first talk about this concept of the church. Matthew has revealed King Jesus for 15 chapters. And until now, this word was never brought up. This is the first time in the New Testament where we see the word church. Miracles were performed the good news of the kingdom was being shared and powerful teaching was being uttered. 
But only now, after the Jewish religious leaders have shown their true colors and Jesus points them out to his disciples, only now does Jesus prepare these disciples for this concept. For this spiritual organism, this body, the church, would be vitally connected with the death of Jesus, which would come at the hands of those very same leaders. This passage, this narrative about Jesus talking about his church is found in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And after all three of those places, we find the same thing like we find in verse 21, where Jesus talks about what is going to happen to him. In verse 21, it says, from that time, so after he concludes this teaching to his disciples, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So in Matthew... Mark and Luke, Jesus talks about church, and then he says, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. The two are intricately connected. And Jesus is here in chapter 16, revealing a little bit more of his plan to us. That something new and wonderful is about to come through his death. That he is going to build something, something extremely powerful, And he is going to endow that something with eternal significance. He is going to build a spiritual body for himself. A people from all tribes and nations and tongues who will be empowered to represent him on this earth in his inaugurated kingdom. He's building up a people. They're going to be one body and they're going to proclaim the king in a world that doesn't want the king. Though I will not give a full definition today of this concept, the church, or ekklesia is the word in Greek, the church is essentially the spiritual body of all believers in Jesus from all times and from all places. This word church, which literally refers to an assembly of Christians who gather together for the worship of Jesus, It is often referred to in a localized way throughout the New Testament. For instance, Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and so forth. Churches are often in the New Testament spoken of just as that. Church is plural in little municipalities across the world. The local church. But here... Jesus is speaking of the church as a whole, as the universal body of believers who have followed him from all days and from all locations. It includes people like the Apostle Paul. It includes people like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and every true believer as a part of Riverside Baptist Church. All believers of all days in Jesus. And though this entire assembly, this great universal gathering, this complete congregation has never met together in full to worship the name of their king, one day his church will be fully built and it will gather for the proclamation of him. For Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, After this I looked and behold, 
a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day, peoples, his church, will gather and they will proclaim him together. What's more, the word church provides continuity between the saints of the Old Testament and Christ's kingdom people in the New Testament. The book of Exodus often speaks of the Israelites who wandered around in the wilderness under the judgment of God as the congregation or the church in the wilderness. At that time, they were the body of God's people, but now something even greater is being built. Not merely a nation for God made up of one people group, but a church of God led by one Lord and made up of all peoples. It is this church which is being built on such a rock solid foundation. And the foundation of this text is Peter's confession in verse 16. Remember what Christ had asked. He said, but who do you say that I am in verse 15? And this question and its answer support everything else that is said here. And Peter answered as I think the spokesman and leader of this group of 12. Because he commonly did this. For instance, in chapter 15, after Jesus had just called the Pharisees blind guides, it was Peter who spoke up and said, explain this to us, Jesus. And his answer here in chapter 16 likely represented the view of the whole group, though certainly Judas had his quiet doubts. Peter answered by honoring Jesus with two titles here. He says in verse 16, you are the Christ. This word Christ is the anointed deliverer, the Messiah, as the Jews called him. Longed for by Jews for many centuries, the Christ or the Messiah refers to the one who would come from the line of King David, who, like King David himself, would be anointed by God as king over his people, and he himself would also usher in a long-awaited deliverance to all of those who hope in God. They were longing for this. They were waiting for this. And Jesus says, you, or excuse me, Peter says to Jesus, you are this. And second, he says, you are the son of the living God. Now, it's hard to say at this point in this gospel how much Peter truly grasped about what he had just said. He called Jesus here the son of God, the living God, whom Peter and his people had worshipped for centuries. And though likely the full significance of this would come later for Peter, he speaks extraordinarily well here, and he at least hints at a glorious truth that Jesus is God's one true Son, and therefore Jesus is of the same nature as God. In fact, Jesus is God himself. Peter, whether he fully understood it or not, is directing us to the high Christology of Jesus that says not only is he the promised deliverer, but he is the son of God. Jesus is the longed for deliverer and Jesus is 
God's Son. And this confession about Jesus is the foundation, I think, of our text. Indeed, I think it is the foundation of our church. Upon Peter's confession in verse 16, Jesus employed a play on words in verse 18 with the words Peter and rock. The word Peter means rock. The words Peter and rock, they are nearly identical in the Greek. Peter is Petros and rock is Petra. Though many make a big deal about the subtle difference between these two words, Petros and Petra, it seems quite unnecessary, to me at least. Because the point, I think, is rather simple. Through this play on words, Jesus makes a correlation between Peter, or what Peter had just uttered, and the foundation upon which he would build his church. The rock upon which everything else would be built. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, verse 18. So Jesus is going to build the spiritual body of all of his believers from all times and from all places upon this rock, upon this foundation. And at this we have to ask, what's he talking about? What is this foundation? What's he referring to? And really there are two options. Does Jesus mean... That he will build his church upon the leadership of Peter, who made this good confession? Or does Jesus mean that he will build his church upon the substance of the confession that Peter has just given? Well, in a sense, Peter and the rest of the apostles, they would be foundational for the church. Throughout the first chapters of Acts, the first 12 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, it is clear that Peter is in the lead. For instance, in Acts chapter 2, Peter himself, he preached the great sermon on the day of Pentecost, whereby the Holy Spirit worked with great power through Peter's preaching, and thousands of people were brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And in chapter 10 of Acts, upon revelation from the Lord, it is Peter who preached the gospel to a household of Gentiles, ushering in the full gospel ministry to those who had previously been outside of Israel. So Peter was foundational to the church. After all, the church was, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 said, verse 20 says, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he was foundational, and they were foundational. However, this rock, I'm convinced, which Jesus ultimately has in mind, is not Peter, but the substance behind Peter's truthful confession. Notice verse 18 carefully. Jesus did not say, on you, Peter, I will build my rock, which he very easily could have said. Instead, he said, on this rock, I will build my church. He is artfully using illustrative words to make a point. Jesus, the cornerstone, as Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, is not going to build the entire foundation of his church upon a mere man, especially one as encumbered by foolishness as Peter. I love the man, but we don't build the church upon Peter. No, I'm convinced that Jesus is clearly referring back to Peter's answer to the question that he had posed, who do you say that I am? And his answer was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Surely in a passage where such a rhetorical device like this is being employed, we have to see beyond the surface of the words to their implied meaning. Christ is saying in verse 18 that on this rock, on the substance of the confession just made by Peter, he would build his ecclesia. Christ would build his church on the truth that he is the Christ, the promised deliverer, and that he is the son of God, God who has come for us. And this, this is a rock-solid foundation. Since the truth about Jesus is the rock-solid foundation of the church, then we must be fully devoted in our local church to this truth and to its connecting truths and to all of its implications. The truth is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, that Jesus is the one whom God declared he would send to be a deliverer for his people, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah in Christ, and that this long-awaited Messiah who is the Christ is none other than the Son of God himself. This is the truth. God has not sent a mere man. He has sent a God-man. He has sent him for us. And there are connecting truths to this which flow right out of it. The Christ, the Son of the living God, he has come to save his people, the church. He has come to save his people, the church. The deliverer has arrived. Peter has confessed it. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church upon the reality that I have arrived. I'm going to build my church upon the reality that I have come. Peter, you get it. We're going to build a whole organism on this truth that I have arrived. And I'm going to save people for my name, Jesus declares. And with that connecting truth, there's another. That Christ, the son of the living God, has come to reign over his people, the church. You're right, Peter. You've got it. I'm going to build everything upon it. That I'm the one who's going to come and deliver my people. And as the son of God, I'm going to be Lord over them. I'm going to be their king. They're going to obey me in part now as they work with my spirit and strive after holiness. But there's going to be a day when they're going to look like me in their attitudes and their words and in their actions. He's building a church that he is going to reign over and even does today. And the implications of this are profound. Number one, the church must be devoted to preserving this truth. We preach it every week. Lord willing, we always will. We preach it every week. We make big of it. We talk about it often, if not always, that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus came as the Savior for his people and Jesus is the King who is over us. We gather for Jesus. It's about him. And we must protect this. We must preserve this because the enemy is assaulting us trying to get our focus off of this. And usually it happens with subtleties. Usually it happens with pragmatism. 
Usually it happens with coming up with our own better way than Jesus himself. So the church must be devoted to preserving this truth. And secondly, the church must be devoted to praising this truth. This is our joy that we have Christ. Peter, one who walked with Jesus, confesses, the one I walked with, he is the Christ. He is the Son of God. I have him and he has me. Praise God. I'm one of his disciples. Relishing in this. Enjoying this. And praising him for the one who indeed has come. And then third implication. The church must be devoted to proclaiming this truth. Jesus, in a Gentile town, says he's going to build his church. Then he's going to have Peter go into a Gentile home in Acts 10. And he's going to preach the gospel. And they're going to be saved. And he's going to be amazed. And I can almost imagine his eyes popping out of his head as he sees Gentiles praising God in the name of Jesus. But Jesus, he brings about the proclamation of this truth to people who are so cut off. And now we, we are to go and proclaim this truth to people who are so cut off. People in rebellion and their sin. People who don't know of a Savior. People who don't know of the love of God. Oh, yes, he has built his church for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of his church. So that's our number one truth. Truth number two, the church is made up of blessed people. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's confession about Jesus was radically different from both the religious leaders of his day and the people of Israel. If you remember from last week, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they could understand many things, but they could not see what was obviously before them in Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3 of this chapter. Chapter 16, verse 2. He, Jesus, answers them, When it is evening, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You can figure out the weather just fine. You can read all of the contemporary issues of the day. You got all that down. But you do not know who is before you. You do not grasp what all of these signs are pointing to. The religious leaders of Jesus' day did not grasp him. And now consider what the people were saying. King Herod, he said, if you recall, back in chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, with regard to Jesus, that this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. What does the king of the land think about Jesus and all that he is doing? He says, well, he must be the guy I recently executed. He must be John the Baptist who's come back from the dead because he's doing all these extraordinary miracles. That must be the case. Now, I understand I have a 21st century mind, and it's hard sometimes to put myself in people's shoes, but his conclusion is not Messiah when it comes to Jesus. His conclusion is, the guy who I recently beheaded because he said mean things about me, 
is now the guy who's been raised again, who's doing these miraculous things. This is Herod's understanding of Jesus. And the people, look at verses 13 and 14, the people have their view. Jesus says, verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So some of them, like Herod, thought that John the Baptist also had been raised to life again. Others thought that the Old Testament prophet Elijah had returned. And this is because of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, where the word of God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they think that Jesus is the reinstated Elijah of old. Still others among the people, they speculated that one of the other Old Testament prophets, such as Jeremiah, had somehow returned for ministry. But the people of Israel, by and large, did not confess that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Resurrected preacher? Sure, that could be it. Returned prophet? I got no problem with that. But the people did not grasp Jesus for his true identity, and they most certainly did not honor him as such. But Peter, whose other name was Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon son of Jonah, was blessed for knowing the truth about Jesus. This word blessed, verse 17, which we have seen many times already in this gospel, it refers to one who has the favor of God. This is an individual who has been endowed with God's gracious love, his affectionate favor. In a subjective sense, it is to be happy because God has put his favor on you. Wow, I am blessed because God has put his favor on me. I rejoice in this, is the idea. It is to be joyful because God has given you his gracious love. Well, Peter finds out here from Jesus that he has been spiritually, eternally, and happily enriched with a true understanding of Jesus. He is blessed by God because the truth about the Son of God has been revealed to him. And understand, please understand, this truth, Jesus says, was not revealed to Peter by flesh and blood, but by his heavenly Father. No mortal being revealed the truth about Jesus to Peter. Not Peter. Not anybody else revealed this to Peter. He didn't figure it out on his own. No one taught him this. It was revealed to him by the Father. The words flesh and blood in verse 17 are a very common Jewish, ex Jewish expression that refers to mortality. refers to a mortal being. Well, Peter's earthly father had not revealed this to him. Indeed, he could not. Because no mortal being had revealed this to Peter. None of the other disciples revealed this to Peter. They were equally incapable because no mortal being revealed this to Peter. Nor did Peter himself acquire this revelation on his own because no mortal being had revealed this to Peter. Peter understood this truth about Jesus and was able even to confess this truth about Jesus because his Father in heaven had revealed it to him. Verse 17. 
For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. A true revelation, my friends, of the person and work of Jesus Christ comes only from the Father. Look with me back at chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. This is another one of those passages that's so vitally important for the whole of the book that we've turned to before several times. Matthew 11, verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I did not put those words in Scripture. This is God's word. The Father keeps back the truth from some, even from people who we might think are the smart and well-off people of this world. And then he instead reveals his truth to others, even to people whom we might think as being lesser. Little children he reveals this to. God the Father is right to damn every one of us in this room. God the Father has elected in his perfect, sovereign, gracious, good counsel to save some to be a people for his name. I do not understand it all, but I believe it. It is the Father's gracious will to reveal his truth to some undeserving people. And it is the Father's gracious will that is consistent with the gracious will of his Son. They are unified in this. But, though that is absolutely true and crucial, anyone who sees Jesus for who he is can come to him. If you see Jesus for who he is, you never need to think, I hope God lets me come to him. Because if you see Jesus for who he is, God has already come to you. Look at verses 28 through 30. Chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, after this powerful passage about God's sovereign hand over some, over all, some he elects to salvation, others not, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
If you're, if you're burdened, if you're weary, if you're heavy laden, if your yoke is heavy, trying to live this life and being bogged down by the burdens of your sin, and you grasp what I'm saying, you grasp what Peter confesses, you admit who Jesus is, understand, my friends, come to him. Come to him. The offer is open to you today. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Put your faith in him, and you will be saved so yes it is fundamentally true that god elects some to salvation it is also fundamentally true that whoever comes to jesus in repentant faith will be saved by god hold those truths up one to make you rejoice that you have been given a god who loves you and the other to help you understand that he freely offers you to come and now tells you to go and take that offer to others. If we, the people of the church, have had the truth of Jesus revealed to us, then we must exult in God over the happy awakening that he has brought to our minds, to our hearts, and to our lives. We owe all of our blessedness to God, our Father. If you have Christ, if you have the spiritual blessings that are given to us in Christ, you have been blessed by the Father. He, in his own sovereign, gracious will, has shown you love out of his own good counsel. He has elected to put his love upon you. And that should make us recognize the blessed estate that we have because he loved me. I'm such a wretch, yet he loved me. Not in me, as we just sang. Not of works of righteousness that I do. Not of lifting hands. Not of songs I sing. Not of clothes that I put on. Not because I have a list of who else I'm better than. But God simply elects to choose me and saves me. Oh, exult in him. He's blessed you. That's not a truth to keep quiet. That's a truth to shout out. Because when you have it, you realize that he's not just everybody's father in the same sense. God is your father in a very special way. And that type of int intimacy, it spurs on a worship that this world has never seen. We must exult in God our Father, we must rejoice, we must praise, we must lift high his name for what he has done. So the church is being built on a rock-solid foundation, and the church is made up of blessed people. It is ultimately built upon the truth about Christ and his gospel. And it is made up of people who have been blessed with divine revelation. Now we're going to see two more truths regarding the church next week that the church is indomitably being built by its divine owner and the church has been given the keys of the kingdom. It's going to get complex. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack with those two. But let me ask you today, where is your level of praise this morning? Let me ask you, church, where is your level of praise this morning? What's keeping you from a life that's marked by worship? I'm not talking about coming and singing, though that's part of it. Where are you in your level of praise 
with regard to your friend next door? Where are you in your level of praise with regard to that pet sin that you've been harboring and doing nothing about that you've been keeping from everybody? Where are you in your level of praise when it comes to commitment to God's people, the church? Are you on the fringe? Are you holding off? Or are you in both feet? Because it's Christ. He built it. It has a great foundation. And though it's got a lot of ugly warts, it's powerful. It's his means for saving the world. Where are you in your level of praise this morning? Does the truth of what God has done for you make you want to esteem him with every component of your life. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have given it to us, that we might be a part of it, that we might grow through it, that we might plant it, that we might nourish it, that we might one day see it standing before your son in praise to his glorious grace. Help us, I pray, Lord, who are filled with grace, to be be people who are filled with high praise over your son for what he has done for us. Thank you, Father, for blessing us, Lord. I pray that you'd help us now to go away from here and walk in accord with your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name.